An own goal at the BBC opens the network up to its critics on issues of impartiality. Afghan journalists are paying with their lives in the power struggle between the Taliban and the Islamic State. And are you okay with AI? ChatGPT and other apps are changing things. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. It was a tweet, 262 characters long. It plunged one of the world's best-known media institutions into chaos and exposed so much about British politics and journalism. It was posted by Gary Lineker, a footballer turned broadcaster, on the UK government's divisive and illegal, under international law, asylum policy. Lineker called the language that the government is using reminiscent of Germany in the 1930s, and then got suspended by his bosses. It turns out they picked on the wrong guy. Faced with a public outcry and wildcat walkouts by Lineker's on-air colleagues, the BBC was forced to reinstate him, apologize, and promised to review its social media policy. They might want to start by looking at the double standards there. The BBC's future, including the way it is funded, was already in doubt. Britain's print sector is dominated by right-wing papers. They've been out to get the network for a long time, and they're now aligned with a Conservative government that's taking a long look at the BBC's funding model and what lies ahead. It's hard to imagine how the BBC could spiral faster into full-blown crisis. The BBC has been in extensive discussions with Gary and his team in recent days. We consider his recent social media activity to be a breach of our guidelines. Do you regret the tweet, Gary? This is a story that got its start online, created a tabloid frenzy, and landed the BBC and the British government in heaps of trouble. Enough is enough. We must stop the boats. When the minister in charge of immigration posted this video on an aggressive new law that stipulates any migrant coming to the UK without the right paperwork will be arrested and deported, she drew the attention of a famous former footballer. Gary Lineker, who now hosts BBC's Match of the Day, tweeted that Suella Braverman's approach was beyond awful, calling it an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. Lineker was quickly suspended, bounced from his studio by senior executives for breaking the BBC's rules on impartiality. But just temporarily, as it turned out, the presenter has almost 9 million followers. They went to work, and now it's Lineker's bosses who are wondering about their job security. So it's a bizarre situation. You've got a former footballer, star presenter, who tweets what he wants, a director general, an editor-in-chief of the BBC who thinks he shouldn't be doing that, and a huge amount of pressure from political parties, from Tory MPs, from the right-wing press, for the BBC to crack down on this behaviour. The problem is, is that the BBC's impartiality guidelines specifically allow for, for individuals like sports presenters to make some degree of political comment, and also uh, Gary Lineker is uniquely well-loved. It's all about the sauce! So if you try and get him sacked, you'll have an awful lot of people coming out in support of him. And this was where it all went very, very wrong for the BBC. What Lineker said was um, a, a criticism 
of the government's new legislation on migration, a policy that many international organizations questioned on the basis of its legality. And one might wonder why then a public persona who dares to criticize and question is being under attack just because he's expressing those voices. What is at stake is the independence of the BBC. The principal characters involved are the BBC's chairman, Richard Sharp, and the director general, Tim Davey, and of course the football commentator, Gary Lineker. And I cannot remember a worse blunder. It has been absolutely awful. But it looks like Mr Lineker might be getting an apology. Within days, Lineker's suspension was lifted. The executives in charge had to apologize. There's been no easy answers. It's been tough to get the balance right. This showdown has exposed the BBC's leadership, including people hand-picked by the Conservative government. It's also revealed where they draw the red lines. By saying Lineker had breached its rules on impartiality, the BBC was effectively telling a sports anchor to stay in his lane, that migration, a human rights issue, was off limits. From accusations of corruption in the bidding process to the treatment of migrant workers. Yet, at the recent World Cup, Lineker spoke up about human rights in Qatar, and nobody at the BBC took issue with that. Very often, we see uh, in British media, in BBC, that it's very easy to talk about violations of human rights in other places. But there is very little engagement with issues of human rights that have to do with our own country. It's almost like human rights are always about somewhere else. And this is very problematic because the, uh, very often newsmaking is starting from the assumption that we have human rights in the UK. But do we? Do we all the time? And when it comes to British politics, there are double standards at the BBC over what its non-news broadcasters are allowed to put out there, depending on the subject and what gets said. Take the case of former opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn, a leftist, and what a BBC celebrity tweeted about him. It also included a Nazi angle that went unpunished. One very good example is that of Alan Sugar, who is the presenter of The Apprentice. Good morning. Good, good morning, Lord Sugar. So like Gary Lineker, more in line with entertainment than with uh, news coverage. The Avi defied. Thank you for the opportunity. If you take a look at his social media, he has directly advised people to vote for the Conservative Party and not Jeremy Corbyn. He tweeted an image of Jeremy Corbyn photoshopped next to Adolf Hitler. None of these things uh, prompted any kind of controversy whatsoever internally at the BBC. And that's because, quite frankly, the right-wing papers were totally okay with it. Newspapers are the engines that drive perceptions and politics in the UK. Roughly 70% of the papers sold have Conservative owners, Tories, and their content veers from the right, like the Times and the Daily Telegraph, to the far right, tabloids such as The Sun and The Daily Mail. This story is tailor-made for those tabloids, given their obsession with the migrant boats landing on the UK's shores and the hostility they have traditionally directed at the BBC. Look, the BBC is always in trouble. I worked for it for 32 years. It was always in trouble. It's always being attacked. This is what the far right wants. This is what the 
Tory press wants. The Tory press has been clamorous on this because, of course, the BBC is, is its rival. Uh, we do not have a, a fair press at all. It's without precedent, I think, almost anywhere else in the world to have such a shrill right-wing narrative proclaimed day in, day out by the majority of our newspapers. Gary Lineker's Twitter feed will be watched by every journalist in London waiting for him to say something else contentious that will rile up the Daily Mail, Tory MPs. And Gary Lineker is an absolute A-list celebrity in the UK. And he's a journalist's dream. If the Daily Mail puts Gary Lineker on its front page, while it might think that Gary Lineker should be punished by the BBC, the Daily Mail's also thinking there, if we put Gary Lineker on the page, it's gonna sell papers. The BBC executives at the helm, their qualifications and allegiances are revealing in themselves. The chairman, Richard Sharp, is a former banker with no background in broadcasting, but he did help former Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson secure a loan for close to $1 million US just prior to his appointment. Tim Davey, the Director General, once ran as a Conservative candidate. The two now oversee a news organization facing existential threats to its funding model. Unlike most public broadcasters, the BBC is not funded directly by the government, but by individuals, citizens, who pay an annual tax, a license fee of around $200. Can I welcome the freeze to the license fee and the debate that is... Successive Conservative governments have toyed with the idea of changing the funding model to have more control over it in ways that could cost the BBC the money it needs and what independence it has left. The licence fee is paid by people who own televisions in the UK, but the amount that they pay and who exactly pays is set by the government. So always there's this um, dynamic where, for the BBC, there's always a pressure because there are constantly reviews into the way that the BBC is run and funded. And so, yeah, there is that pressure. This puts the BBC in a very vulnerable position. And when you've got a media environment which is pretty much in bed with the Conservative Party, it means that the BBC can't really afford to be independent, impartial and critical of the government without fear or favour. That's how it ends up with impartiality being weaponised against its own institution. Because if it is impartial when it comes to the government, they will be castigated as being too liberal, too left-wing, and they're terrified of losing out on that licence fee. Having been backed and arguably saved by his millions of Twitter followers, Gary Lineker will return to the Match of the Day anchor chair this weekend. Meanwhile, the network says it is reviewing its guidelines on impartiality, and those senior executives will have a say over the new policy. That's if they survive in their jobs and don't get red carded first and banished from the BBC. To Afghanistan now, where the Islamic State has taken ownership of the killing of two journalists, the latest victims in ISIL's ongoing rivalry with the Taliban. Flo Phillips is here with more. Richard, March 11th marked National Journalism Day in Afghanistan, celebrated in the northern province of Balkh with a local awards ceremony. But the event turned deadly when a parcel bomb exploded, killing journalist Syed Hussein Naderi, his assistant Akmal Tabian, and leaving more than a dozen people wounded. 
The AMAC news agency, the Islamic State's propaganda outlet, then published a statement claiming responsibility in the name of the Islamic State in Khorasan province, or ISIS-K, a rival of the ruling Taliban, saying they, quote, target journalists working in agencies involved in the war against the Islamic State. Dozens of Afghan journalists have been killed in attacks in the past few years. But last week's blast was the first such incident since the Taliban took control of the country in 2021, following the withdrawal of US forces. Afghan media workers are targets for both sides. The Islamic State disapproves of their critical reporting, and they've been harassed and silenced by the Taliban. According to the press freedom group Reporters Without Borders, in the years since the Taliban took power, the country has lost nearly 40% of its media outlets and nearly 60% of its journalists, a disproportionate number of them women, three-quarters of whom are now unemployed. The fall of Kabul and the rise of the Islamic Emirate has led to the downfall of journalism in Afghanistan. Thanks, Flo. It's been a blockbuster past few months for AI, artificial intelligence. There's been the global popularity of ChatGPT. It can magically and instantly write reams of text on any topic of your choosing so you don't have to. Just this past week, an even more powerful version, GPT-4, was released. AI is not entirely new. It's been part of our lives. From the voice-enabled machines in our homes to the recommendation algorithms in your TikTok and Instagram feeds. What has changed is that AI can now do more than just respond to instructions. It can actually create unique output based on human prompts. From artwork to essays, it has capabilities that used to be the stuff of sci-fi fantasy. And it has people working in the media, graphic designers, data analysts, reporters and writers, all wondering what impact AI might have on their industry. More to the point, on their employment prospects. The Listening Post's Ahmed Mahdi now with an explainer on the potential of AI, how it might transform the media you consume. Humans have this kind of sci-fi fantasy of a, you know, a computer program that we can talk to. That's really weird. Is that weird? Do you think I'm weird? <laughs> kind of. Like in the movie Her or in any other sci-fi film. Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. It's uh, absolutely the new gold rush. It's all anybody here can talk about right now. Artificial intelligence, which I think is, which everybody thinks is the crown jewel. I think that corporate America is going to have to adapt to AI or die. VCs, uh, investors, people who work in tech, uh, the tech press. Uh, this is perhaps feeling like the early launch of the internet itself. That's a fascinating question, right? Is the AI going to come? Your bosses will wonder, can I replace each of these people with artificial intelligence? Is it going to take my job? Is it going to take your job? AI. Artificial intelligence. It's in the news more than ever before. But as computer science goes, it's surprisingly old. Since the 1940s and World War II, when new computing techniques were pioneered to spy on German radio messages, scientists have continued to develop AI to tackle increasingly complex problems. It captured the popular imagination in the late 90s when IBM's Deep Blue computer beat chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov for the very first time. I think it's outstanding scientific achievement. Since then, advanced computing and artificial intelligence has become more accessible and more a part of our everyday lives.
So you take like, you know, Clippy in Microsoft Word, right? Like he was great. I love Clippy, but he can only do a very finite number of tasks. And there've been these inexorable improvements since then to the point where, you know, Siri in your iPhone or Alexa in your smart speaker, they can play music, they can make appointments, they can make phone calls. And with the rise of this really sophisticated AI, I think a lot of people are starting to wonder what the next generation of AI assistants are going to be like. It's already here and it's known as generative AI. AI that seems to be able to learn and create, much in the same way humans can. Whether it's images, video, or even mimicking the human voice, generative AI can make totally new and original content in a matter of seconds. Take Stable Diffusion, an image-generating AI tool. You can type in any prompt, no matter how outlandish, and within moments, you'll get impressive results. It's one of countless new hyper-advanced AI tools to launch recently, many of them completely free to use. I think it's important to remember that uh, even though we are seeing all these sort of crazy, magical, generative AI tools going mainstream, a lot of the core technologies uh, that make uh, these tools possible have been in development for at least the last 10 years. So I think what we're seeing right now is everything coming together, all these scientific breakthroughs, along with massive advancements in how fast computers are able to process data. And so that's why it feels like this stuff has come out of nowhere. Techies everywhere short-circuiting with excitement. Among all of the AI projects to burst onto the scene lately, one has really stood out, and it's called ChatGPT. Instead of photorealistic images or video, it produces text. It sounds simple, but it's taken the tech world and the media by storm. Have you tried Ch Chat GPT? This promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. Une révolution. Qu'on doit à une firme américaine à but non lucratif, Chat GPT. For journalists on a deadline, this technology sounds pretty appealing, but it's one thing to hear how amazing Chat GPT is, it's another to see it in action. Let's take a look. I'm asking ChatGPT to write an intro for a report by the Listing Post on generative AI. And within seconds, there we have it. So ChatGPT basically scours the internet, checking out all of our past episodes online. And that's how it worked out the patterns in our show style of format, and even picked up our presenter's name, all without being told. And with a few edits here and there, this could definitely be good enough to air. It's very impressive tech. So it's no wonder the response from journalists has been a mixture of amazement and concern. Now, normally, we do talk to people, but today we are talking to a thing. Chatbot GTP, thank you for talking to me today. You're welcome. I'm here to help answer any questions you may have. OK, so what I just said, what I just read to you, I didn't write that, and my staff didn't write that either. No human wrote it. That was written by a new online tool called ChatGPT. It's a program. We've seen lots of newsrooms really think about how they're going to, you know, how they could embrace the technology and adopt it in their own practices. Um, BuzzFeed announced that they might be using ChatGPT to generate quiz results, and that makes total sense. For a fun quiz about your personality or favorite ice cream, 100%. Great technology. Um, but then the flip side, we've seen some maybe not so great examples of how newsrooms are using AI. For example, tech news site CNET 
CNET um, started publishing articles that had been generated by AI late last year, and nobody appears to have even noticed it for a full two months. And the whole internet was suddenly like, wait, a major publisher has been publishing dozens of articles that it generated using AI? As that was playing out, we started thinking, um, we'd love to know like, are these AI-generated articles, are they factually strong? The AI had really nailed the sense of being like an authoritative sounding source. But when we, when we zoomed in, we found that there were actually a lot of factual errors slipping through. The errors were sloppy, and considering the articles were on personal finance, the potential for harm was quite serious. For example, one article suggested that depositing $10,000 into a savings account at 3% interest per year would give you a profit of $10,300, whereas in fact the earning would be $300. CNET paused the AI-generated program and an internal review found that more than half of all the articles contained factual errors or plagiarism. They've not given up though. CNET says that though the process may not always be easy or pretty, CNET will continue embracing AI. Meanwhile, the generative AI bandwagon is one that everyone is jumping onto. Microsoft has invested $10 billion into OpenAI, ChatGPT's developer, and Google and Meta are pouring money into their own ventures. Given how the tech works, AI is going to keep improving, and more and more media companies look set to bring it into the newsroom. I think if you're a journalist and you're worried about your job being taken over by an AI, I think uh, you should have more faith in yourself and your professional skills. You know, an AI system can't ask questions. It can only find information that's in its data set. You know, you're still going to need people to find the information and come up with clever ways to do it. An AI will eventually run out of ideas. I think more than completely replacing people. Uh, is going to be used in newsrooms as a collaborative tool uh, that both editors and reporters can lean on uh, to speed up their work. I think you can imagine a scenario when a reporter is out there in the field and doesn't really have the time to, you know, sit down and write uh, 400 words uh, of really good copy, but maybe they can just plug the facts into a generative AI tool and then that tool can, you know, churn out like a decent news report that can be then edited by uh, an editor back in the newsroom. Or maybe what OpenAI has accomplished at this point will turn out to be about as impressive as AI is able to get. We could end up with AI that's a valuable tool to um, support the work of human journalists. Maybe it will even uh, free reporters up to focus on the most ambitious and important work. If we could get there, that might be that might be really interesting. I think it'll be it'll be fascinating to see where all this goes in the coming months and years. Um, and it's possible that it really will uh, deeply change the way many industries um, operate, including the media. And finally, back to Britain and all the bluster over the BBC. Match of the Day, which is the world's most famous football broadcast, had to go without a host after Gary Lineker's temporary suspension, which provided British comedian Munya Chihuahua with an idea. Why not get Suella Braverman, the UK's Home Secretary, who oversees immigration, to sit in the Match of the Day anchor chair? She's the one who Lineker accused of using anti-migrant language not dissimilar to Germany in the 1930s. Would she violate the BBC's impartiality guidelines? We'll leave you now with Chihuahua walking us through what that might look like. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.
Good evening, I'm Suella Bradman and welcome to MOTD, which I assume stands for Make Outsiders Totally Disappear. Uh, apologies, uh, match of the day, sorry. Apparently, Sakaar is on the right wing. Oh my god, same. Oh, and look at that, a bit of showboating there. Uh, only boats I'll allow. Oh, what a marvellous save. He is fantastic at keeping on wanted black and white things out. Can he come and work for me? <laughs> and there was another assist from Sun Hu-min. Is it an assist or is it stealing a British job? Just one to think about. And that trick is called an around the world. As long as it doesn't stop in Britain. And if England keep playing this way, football is coming home. Uh, providing it chooses a legal route, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, football is being detained in central winder. Right, so Liverpool beat Man U 7-0. And a lot of people aren't very happy about that. But I tell you this, I'd rather see seven nils than seven Akbars and Tundays on British soil. Seven nil, sorry.